0: Welcome to the podcast of the Urban Mystic. This is season two, where we meet with fellow deconstructors, fellow journeymen and journeywomen, to hear the story of their first experience of God, calling to ministry, deconstruction, and present journey. You know, I, I've known you long enough <laughs> to know that your mind doesn't uh, doesn't easily rest and stop thinking about things and processing things. <laughs> so. I, I'm left wondering how your thoughts have, uh, have changed and developed over the years uh, just in relation to the institution of the church. I, I know that one of the terms that, that I use is that, um, and I used it in the context of the vineyard, and it wasn't as well received as I hoped, <laughs> is that they're doing the wrong thing for the right reasons.
1: <laughs> yes, it's, I think it's well put. <laughs> if
0: you would pick something like this up again some 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 form of, uh, of 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 working with community and working with individuals in terms of their process, however you would frame it, like I, I guess firstly, how would you frame it, and uh, what do you think an alternative could be to the institutionalism of something like Christianity um, and just how consumer oriented and if not consumer oriented how self sustaining oriented it is you know like 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 if I think of the business churches that are out there it 's easy to knock them. If I if I think back to Kennel with the new song, it's a lot harder to distinguish between the underlying paradigm that creates the institution and and all the good that's going on. Yeah. And 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 I've certainly spent a lot of time chewing on it. And it's definitely been a part of my thinking in terms of how I got here to do this as a podcast, the kind of work I'm doing now and where I want to go in the future. But I'm really interested to know what your thoughts and you know, where your, your thoughts and feelings are at, you know, just, just what's going on in your head?
1: I, 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 don't, I, I don't think that, um, you know, I, I might be a bit sort of idealistic and, and simplistic and naive in my prescription, but my, my firm belief and conviction is if you took, you took the, the role that, or the particular shape that money plays in the church and churches had to give away all of their money um, to people who are either genuine missionaries or to the poor, or to, um, or, or just yeah, share it, uh, share it among the uh, among the families and the poor in in an in in acts type of way. And there was absolutely um, no money for pastors. Uh, you know, I, I don't think that the um, I think if you if you if you um, practice a healthy form of collective leadership and you build a team, there's just no ways you need. It's a full time job to, to lead a church. If it's a full-time job in my mind, you're, you 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 you're not doing it properly. You're following kind of the heroic leader, neo charismatic leadership uh, models, which, which I think are, are, um, are very dysfunctional. So I, I think if churches gave away all their money and there was absolutely, so like it, there's no benefit to me if 10 people join me from the church down the road, because they like our worship team. You know, because we're giving it all away anyway. I think it would go a long way to fixing some of the problem. But I th- I think the you know churches exist on a it's a crass model of franchising that they call church planting, which yes. is demonstrably not reaching um people outside of the church. It's 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 really just kind of rearranging the the pieces on the on the on the game board in terms of existing Christians, um, killing off older more institutional churches. Rather than renewing them, and 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 in, in thirty or forty years' time, the churches that are the happening places now will be busy dying, and and new people will be um, cannibalizing them. So, so I think I think I think it's I think money and um, the metrics of numbers that are so you know, insecure. Pastors seem to be validated by money and numbers, and and I think that's leading to a case where the church is cannibalizing itself. And it's destroying itself. So I, I, I have real hope for the church in the sense of God's church. But I actually, you know, um, I must be honest. I, I looked at at lockdown and COVID, and I thought, wouldn't it be wonderful if if this closes down thirty percent of the organised churches because they 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 don't have money to pay their pastors. That's why that's very cynical. I thought, wouldn't that be great to actually have some people cut loose and force them to, to um you know discover authentic faith, discover authentic faith community, to step into riskier forms of relating to the world and to each other. Um riskier and and you know, that they can't also just um kind of delegate um mission and service to a few paid people, that it becomes something that's part of the DNA of anyone who's following Jesus. So, yeah, I I, I, I kind of you know look forward to the day where, where more and more of these institutions close down. But I'm not naive enough to think that that's actually going to happen because lots of people like the consumerism and they're comfortable there, and it's convenient to to be able to have your entire spiritual life kind of packaged and and compartmentalized into an hour and a half on a Sunday, once or twice a month when you're not at your holiday house. And um, and maybe um, you know if you, if you if you if you've got a very manipulative pastor that you'll go to this thing called house church or cell group or something on a Wednesday night, but but yeah, I, I don't think there's too much hope for it. And I actually, you know, um, I have a feeling that 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 Reformation involves in you know um, new structures and 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 new ways of being God's people in the world recognizing though that, like I said, with all renewal movements, you get the renewal, certain values that are expressed in it, but then in order to kind of sustain them, you have to put some kind of structures in place. So there's a part, a certain part of the process which, which in itself um, almost seems self-defeating because it takes you right back then when the structures are there, eventually the structures dominate. Um, but I still think that if everyone gave all their money away, so I always used to say to God, you can call me to... Play a role in some kind of a first-faith community as long as we can give it all away.
0: I, I, I particularly like the bit where you said you should give it away to to people with genuine, visional callings, um, but that's a vested interest.
2: Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you rewriting your CV quickly then. <laughs> <laughs> genuine, brackets
0: and, and looking looking beyond that, uh, that 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 narrow that narrow box, that narrow uh, calling that some individuals have. <laughs> you know, I I think I think that they, you know, there's a lot of recognition today that to build an institution and to support it and not even just the broader institution and its management systems, right? And franchising support systems, but that each individual congregation, there's so much of those resources just going into sustaining that 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 building and its machinery rather than actually going to anyone genuine causes yeah. or
1: genuine I benefits mean- of everyone. That was an observation, yeah. That observation actually came to me round about. Well, it was said to someone use an analogy to um, express that round about 2006. A friend of mine, um, and he took his cell phone and he put it on the, upside down on the table. And he said, You know, imagine you know, that the Sunday services are, are this black box. And we're not going to question or judge or have any opinion about what happens inside that black box. It might all be wonderful, it might be great, God might be there. But he said if you look at all the resources that go into supporting that black box and making it happen, um, and, and how much money and time and energy goes into it, not just the time of the people who are professionally involved in making it happen, but the time of the people who are attending and spectating. Um, and he says she says that if you look at what comes, the outputs <laughs> that that um that come out of that um black box, you know, that, that's so disproportionate. There's huge resources going in um and, and very little coming out on the other side if if the church was a business it would it would it would be unsustainable um, because it has no value proposition it's not actually solving any real problems um, apart from the problem of 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 um you know described in in um in marx's language of offering affluent people a kind of a, a kind of a, um an opiate and offering poor people a different kind of an opiate. <laughs> Interestingly, from the same texts.
2: Mm. <laughs> yes. I, I remember trying well having to stop myself from vomiting on a friend when I was told once we were investigating the idea of spending funds on a new sound system for the church that I was a part of then. And uh, when I heard the figures that were going into what they were spending, I said, you know, this is crazy, guys. <laughs> what the hell is the point? What on earth are you spending this money on? And I was told, no, that money is worth spending if it brings in the next person who can either cover it with that kind of tithe, which yeah. is the point at which I wanted to throw up on him, or if it just enables us to continue our work to save more souls. And I thought, you see, that is the metric measurement at the other side of that black box, I think, that yeah. they're trying to, to put in. But it just does not compute.
1: Well, it was hard, Yeah. It doesn't. It was. It was highlighted most starkly for me when I was at um, doing my my research at um, University of Pretoria. I was doing some work in the whole area of spatial justice and how um, justice, social justice, what we as we call it, is actually often a product of spatial configurations. And we did something called a spatial immersion in Pretoria, uh, where, where there's a there's a rubbish dump um, just outside Mamalodi, which is kind of like a Two or three kilometers away from the the luxury estate where Oscar Pistorius used to live. And it's, it's, you know, I actually was looking at photos of it the other day. It is a, you go in there in the stench of rot, of decay, of dead animals. It's a post-apocalyptic scene with the poorest of the poor picking their way through a, a level of filth and waste that human beings shouldn't even be exposed to, let alone live on. And literally, Two and a half kilometers away, we w- then went up the road um, to a church that I, I, I mentioned that had just built um, their auditorium for 120 million rand. And we asked them, you know, what about, what about what's happening just down the road? Um, and they said, well, uh, you know, there's a soup kitchen for that. Um, but literally every chair that they had in this auditorium that would seat 15,000 people, every chair cost 20,000 rand, you know, let alone the sound system. And it it was, it was, it was like a, and there are many like it around the world. And I think even in South Africa, I think Steve, that's a bit like, you know, for me that highlighted what you're experiencing and it just made me want to vomit. And the fact that the leaders couldn't see it, that they said, no, actually they felt that it was 120 million rand well spent.
2: (laughs) Possibly a bit underspent in the yeah, that uh, just drives me nuts.
0: You know, you, you know, I, I've taken to when people introduce themselves and they, they pre-title themselves as I'm past this or past that, I, I've taken to substituting, um, you know, Pharisee this or, <laughs> you know, Sadducee that, which, which tends to make them irate. But I, I think the idea of actually just vomiting on someone is actually so much better. I think I need to adopt that. I
2: think it might just be more pointed,
1: yeah. Yeah, <laughs> I'm very fortunate in that I meet very, very few pastors. Um, but yeah, so other, otherwise, you know, I, I've actually, you know, um, I, I, maybe for better or for worse, in a way, I've, 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 I've settled in, in exile because I've found that God is there and that um, I, I can experience God in a more authentic way, away from the trappings of temple and tabernacle and priesthood and, and all of the rituals and all of the liturgies. There's something also about living in that place of exile, I suppose, that um, keeps my heart closer to God, because I don't have to you know if any person I meet, I've got absolutely no agenda for them. I don't need to recruit them, build something with them, change their mind, um, make them like me, and I can genuinely look at people and 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 get a sense, god what what are you doing in this person's life and and is this a space or an opportunity where where you've got some kind of a purpose or a role for me to play. Yeah, um, and I find that quite liberating that, that um, it's just, I think it allows me to relate to people more authentically.
2: I wanted to ask you about that, John, if, if, uh, if I can just jump in there quickly, Tim. Can you give me a sense of, of what does that look like practically to you? So I'm coming back to your statement you made earlier about in 2010 Leaving the church and not looking back. If I'm paraphrasing you badly, there. So I'm, I th- you know, I think our listeners would be fascinated to hear, you know, if you if you don't have a weekly ritual of going to a geographical place to hand over your hard earned dollars, you know, and to be manipulated into being told how terrible you are. What what does that look like practically? When you talk about exile, can you describe that? Um, do you have community? Are there sort of are there markers on this exile that are important for you? Points that you hit regularly every year, every week, every day, and people that you do it with, etc. How would you how would you populate that space for us?
1: So, so there, there's some personal practices which which while they're not uh, uh, of of meditation, which aren't always daily. I, I would prefer them to be daily. I find it easier for them to be daily in summer when. It's a little bit warmer in the morning um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. and I can get out of, I can get outside. But certainly the, the, the spiritual practices that I found that as I have, um, and, uh, you know, and you know that they wouldn't be too different from what you'd find guys like Richard Foster and Dallas Willard have talked about in terms of spiritual disciplines, although some of the, the, the content and the form of them might be slightly different, but, but there've been spiritual practices, which are very much part of my life. And I found that, They've been far more powerful in switching off and transforming the parts of me that are broken and and that I'm unaware of and that are likely to hurt people and and cause pain in relationships. So I I found that through these spiritual practices, which are part of my life, I'm able to experience transformation and also um, encounter God. I miss corporate worship, I must be honest. That's probably the one reason I'd go back to church is is that space of corporate worship. But um, I I find that um, I'm able to express worship um, on my own and in in other contexts. There have been people that I've been connected with um, and and people do come and go, but there certainly are people and a community of people who have been part of the journey with me. And then I suppose it's really just a thing of, of um, realizing that my calling in ministry hasn't ended because I'm outside of the church. So if, let me give you a few examples. Yes, please, um, take that further. I was, I was hoping I, you would go there. While I was a chili sauce um, you know, um, we find most restaurant goers don't go, managers don't go to church because they're working on a Sunday or a Saturday. So it would often be a case where I would be in some dodgy restaurant in PE and and would look at, some staff member there and and God would kind of show me how, you know, what, what was happening in their lives or something, some area that God wanted to speak into or heal and pretty much as we'd always done at New Song uh, in the Vineyard days, I would say, look, this is gonna sound a bit weird, but I get the sense that you're going through X, Y, and Z and and God's aware of it and can I pray with you and <laughs> that kind of thing. And I suppose I've moved away from, that i don't do that as much um i have part of my spiritual practice in the eastern cape was to um the eastern cape has has lots of people doing what's called hitchhiking it's not really hitchhiking as we know it. it's poor people standing next to the road holding out a 20 or a 50 round note hoping that someone will give them a lift uh, two or three hundred kilometers to where they're going and and a regular practice and something that I've actually reflected on quite a lot was, was to actually intentionally um, pick up these people and and get to know them on that two or three-hour journey and allow their presence in my life to challenge me. I, I did quite a lot of work around um, sort of 2012, 2013, 2014 in communities where there'd been xenophobic violence or violence against foreign migrants, I try, working with... Um, local community leaders and um, foreign migrant communities in those communities to try and find um, collaborative ways of bringing the opposing groups together. A lot of the work I've done in schools that have been in distress um, due to um, racial conflict and racism for me, I've I've also, I've seen myself as being in in many ways a pastor to those schools. Um, without calling myself a pastor but but the role i'm playing is 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 very very similar, and even in organizations in in many ways uh, you know maybe if I were to give the in my, some of my consulting work I, I'm a bit like a therapist um, to teams and organizations but you could also You know, you could also kind of dress it up in more Christian language. I I don't really feel the need to. And and that it's almost like I'm going into teams where there's a lot of pain and anger and conflict and mistrust. And doing the work of the kingdom, which is to bring healing and bring reconciliation. And I think part of my awareness has been of, of just how busy God is outside of church structures that one can participate in what God's doing often more easily and, and with more freedom outside of those structures than in it. So, um, you know, I wish I could say, wow, it's something I intentionally do every week. Um, you know, um, it really isn't apart from the, 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 the kind of the, the spiritual practices, which are part of my life. Um, but it's something which is very much a part of my life and, um, a lot of the kind of, uh, I suppose the giving has been, um, there's, there's been a a part of giving, which has been putting people through, um, vocational training through university, um, and, and helping people set up NGOs and businesses and put putting money into those, which has been for me, you know, a part of me, I suppose, giving away what I have materially, um, as, as a way of, of, um making sure that that my relationship with money isn't simply mirroring what I accuse the church of of having and doing. So I suppose I've tried to hold on to and maintain a a whole lot of those kinds of practices, but in in very non-religious ways. Um, But still understanding that in doing what I'm doing, I'm kind of putting my small hand in God's big hand and trying to do what I see the Father doing. Without needing to use Christian jargon um, to kind of explain it or to describe it, but just happy to have a sense that uh, you know I'm, I'm I'm doing something that expresses God's heart for the world, and and it's part of Jesus's revolution of of turning this world and its values and and everything about the power structures in this world upside down. You know, so um, yeah. If I'm doing a workshop on gender-based violence, um, I see that as ministry.
0: Part of what I love about what you're saying is is that uh, you know, in, in giving up the the institutionalism and the finance ones, also giving up a particular language, and they all seem to work together to to almost create this machinery where to to do any social good is to bring people back so that they're part of the institution to contribute in any way to people's lives. It's got to have the return of bringing people into the institution. And you know, the language, the, the, the machinery, the structures, it, everything supports that. And when I, when I speak to people that are really into the, the church and into the institutionism, they don't see how ministry, relationship, the work of the kingdom, et cetera, et cetera, takes place apart from the institution. And it's almost like the only way they see any of that kind of stuff as being valid or fruitful is if it's got the end goal of building the institution of the church and building those local co- congregations and their structures. And I find that particularly frustrating, and it it's particularly frustrating because I feel like I, I keep wanting to um, headbutt them, but I, but I can't. So so, I, so I'm left with the feeling that I'm hitting my head against a wall and I should just headbutt them instead because, because people that are really into that institution they they can't see any other end to it. And so whenever there is good being done, it's almost like we start a project in order to do this bait and switch. We start a project to feed the poor or to care for people that are victims of gender-based violence or anything like that. But the real goal that we want there is to form an artificial pseudo community that comes to church and populates a thing called the church. And the end result of that with those individuals is that they become part of the machinery, that their work is to bring other people into the organization. And in turn, those people are going to be schooled into bringing other people into the organization. And as long as we've got this, this back door that is smaller than our front door, we're going to get a growing
1: group <laughs> And it's about building the institution, I suppose. Yeah, and I think it comes back to what what Steve said about um, you know, using the language of a movement earlier. You know, I, I, and this is probably where where I'm at fault in, in my practice now. You know, that Jesus, I see Jesus as a revolutionary who really came to start a movement, who who came to you know to bring heaven to earth, which in, involves a not just the, the the healing of of everything that had. That is wrong with this world, but, but, but also a life that expresses an inversion of the values of this world and the and living out of the values of heaven. And that was a movement. It didn't need to be institutionalized. People could, people could do it and, and embrace it and discover it wherever they were. But yet the movement did give rise to very real communities of faith. And I suppose if I look at what I'm doing, I've become quite detached from community. Um, so, so if if the institutional church is erring by drawing people into the institution in order to try and preserve or create community or or build something, may, maybe where 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 I'm failing, I suppose, is that I'm I'm not trying to do that at all. You know, I, I'm not calling people from anything to anything. Um, maybe I'm trusting that other people will do that somewhere in the process, uh, or I'm just lazy and I haven't got the energy to be part of that something that people need to be called to. I I don't know if I really have the answer of what that looks like, though. I'm I'm hoping you guys are going to figure out how to do the
2: communication and then (laughs) also. I oh, know that's the whole point of the interviews. <laughs>
1: <laughs>
2: when,
0: when in exile, being exiled. You, you know, one of the frustrations that I've had over the years of 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 feeling like I needed to hold on to the intentional community thing is that I find that people are so schooled into being institutionalized that there's there's always a point that a group just flips back into it. And for some groups it's been as small as five, and with others, the minute it hits 12 or 15 people, I find the falling back into that dynamics and losing the relational dynamic. And, and I feel like in some ways, part of the problem is that we, we traded a relational paradigm for an institutional paradigm. And now, and now the institutional paradigm wants to try and translate itself into a community paradigm, but it's still not quite the same thing. And, and I, I, keep, I keep finding myself coming back to that and being frustrated with that because there's, there's something to developing a practice of, of mindfulness and and to not holding on to results, like trying to plant communities that I feel is quite freeing for in, individuals, both the individuals that are doing that kind of work and the individuals that are on the receipt of it. You know, so so they don't, they don't have to pay you back or pay God back by joining a church. What they can do is, is spend their time more valuably trying to figure out whether they can relate to God. And join God in what God is doing in that sense, you know.
1: And, and I suppose if if that involves connecting with some other people in a local environment who also want to be part of what God is doing in that space, then then that is great. Um, inevitably, though, someone wants to be in charge, <laughs> and and that's
2: maybe where the where the problems start. Or, or you get the tension, which I hear you describing earlier, John, when you talked about the Kenilworth picture of you said you know there were maybe 150 people that were keen to go in this direction that you felt quite sort of connected with God and that God was leading in that direction but there was a number of other people by far the majority that weren't that keen and so I think you find that tension present in those communities where there are both individuals that wish to be in charge and there are groups of people that look for somebody in charge and I find that that's a rather bad marriage that just breeds this unhealthy community of a scapegoating of an abdication of my own responsibility, and you will do that for me. And it just, and, and an acceptance from a leader in yes, I will become your God. And it's a bad cycle.
0: You know, in some ways, when I, when I think back to that, I still, I still remember saying to one of the, the people that came, came to me is, is that as I read that community at the time, there's the potential for three or four groups to actually go off and form vibrant communities.
1: <laughs> I think you're right, Tim. Yeah, yeah.
0: And, and instead of the, the, that core group that was um, amongst us really fighting with you around that at the time, it, it's almost like, like I felt that they didn't recognize that. And what they did is potentially kill off three potential really healthy communities that could have grown out of it.
1: Well, well, that happened because one particular person had a vested interest, financial interest in trying to take over from from me um, that community because they didn't have a job anymore, and and so they didn't want to see it fragment into smaller groups because that would that wouldn't leave a big enough pie to pay um, uh, uh, the, the kind of salary they wanted. So that was that was why that didn't happen, basically. Um and, and and it didn't work out that way anyway. But I, I want to just get back to something that, that Steve said about abdicating responsibility, because I think it for me it's it's where the, the where the line gets drawn in a way for me is that I think there's a, a large group of Christians and, and um it might equate in some way to Fowlers at Fowlers' faith stages um who, who want certainty, they want easy answers, and they almost want a lawgiver. Um and, and I think there's also, there's a, a, another level of faith where you can live with paradox, you can live with uncertainty, you can actually live more comfortably in the question than you can live with an easy answer. And, and I think that's, it's, it's almost, so, so some people abdicate responsibility for their spiritual lives and for a whole lot of other things to a pastor or an authority figure because he gives them those easy answers. And, they, and, and, and and they know that as long as they're following his version of the easy answers, they're in that in-group that's going to that's safe, that's going to go to heaven. We're, we're living in the risky space of saying, "I don't know," and um, I've got questions and I've got doubts, and I haven't figured it out. and um, you know, and it, it, it goes beyond just kind of theology, even to issues of of inclusion, of, of you know, who's welcome in God's people. And and do we say that certain people can be, you know, welcome and affirmed, but other people can be welcome but not affirmed? You know, you can you can be part of us, but we're not quite sure we actually like who you are or, or what we think you might be doing. I
0: mean, that 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 generally applies to the good old LGBTQ plus kind of communities, yeah.
1: Yeah. Okay. So 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 for so for me, it, it's about actually. Um, there's such a fixation, I suppose, on on following the, the rule book that's been handed down by these authority figures that people have abdicated responsibility to or that have, that have, have made the rules since the days of the Catholic Church that, that um, people are, are afraid of a more risky kind of missional um, living that actually seeks to reach out and, and just love people and, and create a community of, of, of people who are drawn into God's love and who can be embraced and affirmed, um, no matter who they are or, or where they come from? And um, yeah, so so um, I I think that the abdicating of responsibility, where people look to someone for easy answers and rules and things like that that make them feel safe, has a flip side in that it leads to communities being created, which tend to be communities that exclude and that. Um, where, where doubts um, or dissent or questioning isn't welcomed, and and I think it, it's inclusion, it's doubts, it's questioning, all of these things are the are the stuff of mission and the stuff of growth and the stuff of transformation. It's in that messy space that that we discover each other and we discover God and we discover life. So the the, the, the sad thing is that in almost trying to protect a church space, I think it ends up killing it.
2: Yeah, in the same way that covering your child in cotton wool, although it seems in the short term to be a great idea in terms of protecting them, it actually just squashes their development. It does, really. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <No, no. laughs> no, no. It'll be too late if you were a man in their 20s now. <laughs> I might be breaking new ground here. <laughs>
0: You know, didn't didn't you see that uh, the last uh, Red Bull downhill guy did it with training wheels? You know, like broke records. No, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah I, I think I think it's it, it's interesting. There's there's you know, like like I say, communities that stress accountability and and leadership are often low trust environments. Low trust environments are often not healthy. I think in the same way that the language of safety and trying to make everything safe, you you neuter a lot of the complexity that, that that just comes from growing up. You know, I mean, everything that we do that is really exciting is tremendously dangerous. You know, if you go diving, that's dangerous. You know, everything in life ends up being quite, quite dangerous with these tremendous consequences. What makes it exciting is living on that edge between stupidity and, and responsibility or fun.
2: Yeah. You
0: kill
1: curiosity and you kill discovery, and that's I think you kill authenticity.
2: I just wanted to say, just quickly, I really enjoyed the way in which you described uh, kind of your current lifestyle, for lack of a better phrase, um, the freedom that uh, with which you spoke, or the freedom that you described rather. Um, it really sounded to me as though it's it's a life lived without the need for that sort of secondary apologetic you know, that's continually needing to describe why it's being done because it's it's connected to some form of institution or community that's backing it. But that picture of putting my small hand in God's big hand and kind of getting on with it without waiting for it. Well, you know, well, actually I do this because I'm I'm sent by some group of clandestine figures or, you know, I, I drank the blood of a ewes. I don't know, left calf or whatever in some kind you know, I, I love that picture that you described there of getting on and living with God and doing what you feel you should be doing, regardless of where that happens without needing to continue to be the sort of defender of the faith. Um, and specifically that idea of not having to, you know, seek to manipulate people into some kind of organization or group or belief structure. There is great freedom that you described there. and I, I enjoyed that. Thank you.
1: Yeah, I enjoy that. Yeah, thanks, Steve. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Yeah, so my prayer meetings are inevitably on a mountain bike on my own now. Um, but um, I, I find they're much they're much richer than they ever were um, when they were in my study.
0: <laughs> I, I remember in the, in the days before I, I landed over at a New Song with you, um, I was at a, another church called Metro Vineyard. And the guy who was running at the time, uh, good old Richard, and and, and myself, we we <laughs> we used to do these uh, pr- these pastoral pre-meetings with all the city-wide churches. And it was such a dreadful experience that we were continuously trying to abdicate to each other <laughs> that someone had to go and represent. <laughs> and it was either gonna be him or me. And we did everything from draw straws over <laughs> it to fight over it to, <laughs> to everything else. So 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 the thought of transferring that to the mountain bike and and actually having a rich, vibrant connection is is just way better. <laughs>
1: It's an interesting thing is I actually hated prayer meetings at church. It was my least favorite part of church. I thought prayer meetings were the most boring and frustrating use of time, and they never seemed real. Um, and it's funny, I, you know, I sometimes will ride for five or six hours, and, and of that five or six hours, um, three or four hours will be spent in conversation with God um, about all kinds of things and and um, and real conversation which was something I didn't actually experience in church, which maybe is why I made so many mistakes. Maybe I should have taken up mountain biking sooner.
2: <laughs> I, I, I really desperately want to just pick up on that quickly if I can, John. I'd love to just hear, just qualify for me. What do you mean real conversation? I'd love to know, just dig a level deeper. What does that mean to you? So,
1: so you know, so, so you want to kind of if you, like, okay, I, I've just moved back to Cape Town, but I've been living in East London for the last 10 years where we literally from where I live, I can, I can be on um, rural jeep tracks and gravel roads within 20 minutes. And then you could, you could, you could ride. 100, 120, 150 kilometers, you know, up long hills and mountains. And, and, and so for me, it would be simply like I, I would I'll nearly always start a ride with some questions in my heart or some issue that I'm kind of wrestling with. And, and and I would talk to God about it and ask questions and make provocative statements. And then sometimes just sit with that question in my heart for half an hour and um, you know, one of the things about, about long steep hills is that um, that they, they make you shut up. And and I don't know, I, I don't know if it, if if you know, how, how much of it is is um, is kind of an echo chamber within my own head, but I, I definitely got a sense of of in many of those rides and many of those situations of, of a clarity coming to me about issues related to my life, related to my relationship with my kids, related to my work. Um, related to purpose. a Real clarity coming from somewhere outside of me. It, it wasn't just a kind of a, um, a distilling of all of my own thinking. It was often insights and answers um, that would be things i had never thought of and solutions to problems and challenges. Um, and, and maybe there's a psychological explanation for that, that, that um, I was simply taking myself into a space where my brain was able to create distance between the problem and myself and, and to come up with new perspectives. I don't know if that was the case, but for me, it felt very much like a, a, a space in which I could talk to God. And, and if, and, and, and in the, in the having long enough times of, of being quiet and um, without thoughts going through my head of, of learning to actually hear answers. Um, and, no. Not, not saying I heard the voice perfectly, but certainly it, it felt to me like the, the closest and still does feel to me like the closest I've ever come to in my life to to a real conversation with God of of, of talking and listening um, rather than just talking and taking a shopping list to God.
2: Thank you and I ask just because I, I find it quite uncommon to come across people that describe conversational engagement with God and specifically picking up on the the idea of prayer meeting that you're talking about. I have to, to I would echo similar thoughts about prayer meetings being the bane of my existence. Yeah. And one of them is because I think prayer meetings are where conversation with God goes to die. Um, and so I was just interested in 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 that thank you. I I think there are many people who attend prayer meetings that don't think the conversation with God is actually possible. Their only understanding of relating to God is shouting at him loudly.
1: And I also say that when I say I felt God speaking to me I I hold that very lightly so I would never come back from a ride and say to someone God told me but it would be more a a, a sense of renewed clarity of insight of, of, of focus of purpose That i would be able to carry forward and again hold lightly in the sense of well you know in an ongoing process god am i hearing am i hearing from you and and is this your voice that's giving me the clarity and that's giving me the insight and that's giving me the solution so so you know there's a kind of a maybe an ongoing kind of dialectic and dialogue dialogue and dialectic happening that leads to a kind of a an end result which is invariably as much the product of john's mind as it is of god's voice but somehow god's voice is present in it and has contributed to it
0: john thank you so much for for taking in time and joining us you know i, I hope this will be the first conversation of many in in this context
1: oh cool it's been good chatting guys and a nice chatting to you as well steve and, and just getting to know you a little bit more in the conversation
2: Mm, likewise, thank you. I've appreciated your openness and willingness to engage John. Thank you. That's, uh, that's fantastic.